You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. For her production of Nine Lives, our guest today, Julie Lin, was nominated for an Independent Spirit Axiom Producers Award, which honors emerging producers who, despite highly limited resources, demonstrate the creativity, tenacity, and vision required to produce quality independent films. Lin has also produced the movies Ten Items or Less and The Bulls and currently has two films in production, Passengers and The Jane Austen Book Club. Julie Lin, welcome to Film School. Goodness gracious, I should hang up now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You've already accomplished enough. Just go away. How Talk are you? about your imposter complex. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going today? It's good, although I'm in that total withdrawal from filming. I went right from Jane Austen filming that to Passengers. Uh-huh. So for the first time, with, with Passengers having wrapped a couple of days ago, I'm not filming for the first time in months, uh-huh. and I'm in total withdrawal. Let me ask you about that. Is it more fun to watch filming? Or post-production? What do you get more out of? Well, I think what's really fun from a producerial perspective is that you're, on, you're the first one on and the last one off. So what's fun about it is being part of literally the entire creation. Yeah. But I will say that there is – my friend Karen McCarthy, um, who's a line producer, calls it the drug of production. Yeah. It is so intense, and especially when you're on location, which Jane Austen was here in L.A., but Passengers was up in Canada. Mm. So you're on location filming six days a week working 14 hours a day with the same people, very intense, then you leave them not to see them for who knows when, right? So there is, to that, a certain intensity and withdrawal. But, you know, there are always favorite days. I love shooting. I love reading, finding that script for the first time. I love the day when you put the movie up on screen and you record score when you play live music against it. I think that's magical. It's the total thing. It's really fun. There's no... I I love it. (laughs) No, no. So you've been doing this for... A while now. You've yeah. been involved in productions that go back. I was good. You were on Seabiscuit. You were a production manager on Seabiscuit. I just, Kathy Kennedy called me and we chatted and she asked me to produce the horse races. Right. So I didn't produce the whole movie, no. but I produced the horse races, which was really fun because I got to see, because I've been making really much smaller movies, what a big giant studio film looked like. And that was really interesting because after that, I didn't make another sort of big studio film until the one I just finished, which, Passengers. Which, by the way, without at the risk of sounding syncophantic, I thought that was a terrific part of Seabiscuit oh, or the you. horse races. Yeah. Uh, it was fun. Seabiscuit. It was hard. Yeah. But it was well, fun. Well, you were right there. You were re- literally, you felt like you were a, a jockey in those in those sequences. Well, so. John Schwartzman, did an, who was our DP on that, did an amazing thing. We met John, the DP, the director, Gary Ross, Chris McCarron, who was our technical advisor, our first CD, Adam, and I met for uh, months, every night, late night. Good thing that was before I had my baby. And we, we devised these races, sort of furlong, literally furlong by furlong, or furlong is an eighth of a mile, mm-hmm. because the, you, know, you have to take care of the horses. And we worked with our horse ranker, Rusty Hendrickson, to make sure none of the horses would get in trouble. And, and John Schwartzman literally invented a way of shooting these films, where we, had a, we trained the horses to run next to a camera car with a big giant crane on it, a big flatbed camera car with a crane on it. And we trained them not to be scared of the camera, so the camera could crane right inside mm-hmm. the race. Oh. Or jockeys might wear little cameras on their helmets right. or under the girth of a horse. So 
Schwartzman did an amazing job on that film, I thought. He really invented a way to shoot horse racing that had never existed before. Have any close calls with all that? No. Oh, very good. You know, we had a couple horses that got tired. It's like the equivalent of getting a little tendonitis, kind of, you know what I mean? You would call playing up lame. And so we had some horses that we had to put on some bed rest um, or standing rest. (laughs) But we didn't lose any horses or anything like that. Well, Well, for anyone who knows anything about film production... There's a lot of retakes. You're you're constantly yeah. going back and uh, to to do a sequence over. So you really were putting those horses through their paces. Well, we had matched sets. No yeah. horses worked two days in a row. Okay. They could sometimes work a second day in a row if we knew that they were going to have a couple days off. Right. And they would never work more than a couple furlongs at a time without a rest. And then we had matched sets. We had five grays that looked alike. You know, we had 20 bays that looked alike. Yeah, so right. we, we had paint to paint horses uh, with streaks and tips so that their manes and markings on their faces would match. Well, I, I do want to move on because I don't Sorry. want to talk about... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't want to talk about Seabiscuit. Horse, horse more. makeup. But, but I do... But I, 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 I want to know more about horse makeup. No, but I do want to okay. say, as, as somebody who never went to the track until fairly late in life, you'd managed to convey the power that you feel when horses are rounding the that last turn and heading for the for the home stretch there is a real you can feel it even up in the stands well, and you, you guys managed to do a great job of conveying that let's well, it's fine, but let's let's talk about the movies that nobody's seen <laughs> 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 like a million, well million you, you, no i want to ask you just how'd you get into producing what, what was your first gig if you will and how do you make the transition into producing well i love movies yes I had been a First Amendment lawyer for a nonprofit back east and been working with a number of artists, but had always sort of loved movies and theater. And through my university, which was the University of Virginia, I met a couple alums, and I came out here, and my first job was as a creative executive for a big-time producer named Mark Johnson, reading scripts and doing notes and just kind of learning how it all fit together. And then I went from there to working in production and learning how to sort of be the junior producer on projects for another producer for three years, Marshall Persinger, who um, had a company called Fresh Produce. And then I just decided that I was killing myself over projects that were not necessarily what I would have chosen, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And against everybody's advice, because it's hard, (laughs) I went out on my own as an independent producer. And that's been about eight years now. There's some kind of correlation here. You're an attorney. Right. right. Did you hang out your own shingle, or was it? Were you with a firm? How no, you... I was with a nonprofit called the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression. Well, we could talk about that for <laughs> for hours because that's kind of a okay. So here you are, a producer. You hang out your shingle, and you say, "I'm a producer." Right. What happens? Do you do you have agents? They solicit projects for you. Do you hustle them yourself? <clears throat> well, this... for a number of years, basically nobody returns your phone calls. Okay. That's what happens. Okay. I mean, it's it's pretty brutal, actually. Yeah. And I, I learned a lot of lessons in a very hard way. You yeah. know, you start saying, okay, I'm going to have this one project that I really love, and I'm going to make sure that one project gets made. Well, that doesn't work. You need to have a bunch of projects. Not a bunch, but at least a selection, because you, the one that you think is going to go next is, has never, in my experience, actually been the one to go next. Mm-hmm. And they also feed each other. When you have success on one, it feeds the others. So there was a lot of time in the wilderness. You know, I had a movie that was, I, I went out on my own with one project that I was really excited about, which, by the way, has yet to be made. Oh, I was going to ask you, okay. And um, we actually had a German financier on board, and we were in active pre-production, and we were a couple weeks away, and they breached. Mm. And I literally did the thing I've never done before, which is I called, I've never done before, i never done since, which is I called my parents, and I said, I have to make payroll before mm. I let people go. Can you help me? So I'm still paying my parents back for that oh. um, out of each of my teeny little fees. 
but I just couldn't not pay people for the work that they had done. I mean, that was a big thing for me. So you learn. You learn yeah. really hard lessons, and you also can't get your – I mean, people don't return your phone calls. You don't have a track record. It's, it's a disaster. So you have to just – it's tenacity. It's taste and tenacity, right? Yeah. You have to trust your own taste, and you just have to hang in there. And sometimes you have to take jobs. You know, somebody will call you and be like, can you do this? And you go, and you do it because it makes – contacts and you learn i mean every time i go on a set i learn stuff right every time well now let me ask you as a producer do you have to have a production company or you no okay so you're out there your name is out there as a producer i mean i made a company i formed a company right. mockingbird pictures right right but no you don't you can just be a producer for there are many people that make an entire life's work out of being what we call a line producer, which is a pure physical production producer. Right. And they, they're journeymen from project to project. So you don't need the shingle. But for me, I wanted to sort of start to, I wanted to feel like I was building a little something, a little community of films and people and trying to work with some of the same people over and over again when I love them, which I often do. We're speaking with Julie Lynch. She's a producer. Uh, her more recent work that you would have seen in the theaters would it be 10 Items or Less and Nine Lives. Tell us a little bit about Nine Lives, the film that earned you a nomination for an Independent Spirit Axiom Producers Award. Well, it's, um, by the way, it's not the Paris Hilton Nine Lives. There is a Nine Lives out there with Paris Hilton. <laughs> yes, I saw that, as a matter of fact. You yeah. did? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see the film, okay. but I mean, I saw that it was out there. As, as, as... Um, I got involved with that because I was producing a triptych. It was called Fathers and Sons, written and directed by three really, really close friends who had all graduated from AFI together. And one of them was Rodrigo Garcia. And it was very funny, during the whole making of the triptych, I thought, oh, well, Rob and Jared, they're really happy with the job I'm doing. This is going great. And it was my first full producer credit. And, but Rodrigo, I'm not sure. Like, he's a little hard to read. I think maybe he doesn't like me. I'll just try really hard. Until the end of the movie, when he handed me his next script and said, mm -hmm. I'd like you to produce this if you're interested. Which, by the way, turned out not to be Nine Lives. It's something else that, again, still has not been still made. Hasn't been made okay. But then, a, a while later, he had this idea for Nine Lives, and he wrote it, and he handed it to me, and we worked on it. And we made it, and it was written to be very small. We made it for about half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. The whole movie is only nine Steadicam shots, so each piece rehearsed for a day and shot for a day. And actually, one piece rehearsed on a day, another shot. So the whole production period was only 17 days. Wow. And we had this sort of interesting challenge of actors that would just come in and out for a couple of days. We didn't have any one actor that was with us for the entire making of the movie. Do you enjoy working with limited resources? Do you find a discipline there that oh, can yeah. be enjoyable? Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, one of the great things that Rodrigo and I talk about, because I just did my third movie with him, Passengers was with him, and it was a much bigger movie, right? Mm -hmm. So we had people from the financiers who were very interested in how we were utilizing their money. The thing about Nine Lives was it was so little, and we basically supported it with foreign sales, that we had nobody to please but ourselves. So the major decisions were made, me and Rodrigo. And that's a huge difference from a studio film where... Everybody has a pocket full of opinions <laughs> that you have to integrate together, right? Mm. So there is, there's both the discipline of having to try and find a way to make it without money. There's the freedom of being able to say to actors, to crew people, to whoever, this is the amount of money we have. We'd love to have you join us. If you can't, no harm, no foul. But it's kind of are you in or are you out? So there's a real freedom in the negotiation of that. And so, yes, there, it's wonderful to make a movie that size. It's also fun to see a bigger movie. It was fun to see Rodrigo work with toys, with visual effects and with yeah. special effects and with days, you know, 40 days to shoot a movie. And the thing that I think distinguishes Nine Lives as opposed to Ten Items or Less is you had dozen 
established uh, movie actors yes. in this film. I mean, big names, Holly Hunter, Glenn Close, and a number, Kathy Baker. There's a, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving on many of them you sh- I should mention, but big names, <clears throat> small film, and then you go to uh, 10 items or less, and you've got really one established star in Morgan Freeman, mm-hmm. and you've got an, uh, an upcoming star. How much of a different feel do you have in a, in a film the, the, between those two different uh, films? Well, it's very different, primarily because when we were working with Morgan Freeman, he was there every single day of the shoot. There was no day without him. Right. Whereas on Nine Lives, nobody worked with us for more than four days. Right. Okay. Even if they were in two of the vignettes, they were right. they were only with us for four days. And Morgan was with us all, I should say the whole time, but that's only 15 days of shooting, right? Right. We made 10 items in 15 days. Right. So it is different because there's, I think, a certain ownership yeah. in the movie when you're in almost every frame of it. Yeah. And I think for the the folks that came in for Nine Lives, it was sort of like a fabulous theater experience, a very quick one, because those scenes all played out in real time. Mm-hmm. People came in, they did their scene from beginning to end. We did, you know, maybe 10 takes of each one, and then they were done. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a guest artist <laughs> than, a, than someone who owns the film, yeah. if that makes sense. And yet they were all incredibly supportive and there every time we asked them to be there and they were amazing. And because it was so small, no one asked for special stuff. So it was remarkably easy. We didn't have, for on Nine Lives, for instance, we didn't have any personal hair and makeup or personal wardrobe or personal anything. Everyone just kind of came and went with the flow. People mostly brought their own clothes. We're speaking with Julie Lynn, producer. Now, you did the Jane Austen Book Club. You said that was in California when you were you producing. We made that that here in L.A. I've actually Uh did, up until leaving for Vancouver on this last one, I've done, I think, five movies in a row in L.A., Mm Uh, which has been great. Yeah, Jane Austen Book Club is in post right now. We're just reaching the end of the director's cut, and so we're going to start looking to show the movie to a, a little, a small preview screening audience. We're going to start working on sound and mm-hmm. color correction and, and finalizing the film, really. Does that get uh, frustrating, showing it to the screening audiences? You have a vision of what you want it to be, and then you're going to have to fine-tune it, perhaps, to their taste. Does no. that... No? I, I, no, I mean, I think it's, it's just information, right? Yeah. And you can choose to use the information however you want. You won't always... I think sometimes you'll hear things, and you will, you will literally decide to discard them because they're not in line with the artistic vision of the director. Uh-huh. I mean, when you've got a supportive distributor, as we do in this case, we have Sony Classics, which is very filmmaker-driven. So I think it's information, mm-hmm. and information is useful. For instance, say a lot of people are confused about something. That's important information that we need to address. You know, there's this old saying that if someone calls you a horse once, you can ignore them. If they call you a horse twice, you can hesitate and ignore them. But if three people call you a horse, you have to go buy a saddle, right? <laughs> so I think it's just information, and it's useful, and you, you use it as you see fit. And, and so it'll be, it'll be great to show it to some people outside of our own tiny little inner circle. Would you describe yourself as a very hands-on producer? Do you, are you in the editing room with a director, or do you, do you offer opinions? Do you, I, I definitely trust... offer opinions. Yeah, okay. um, I do not sit in the edit room with the director unless I am invited to look at something in particular. Okay. I think it's really, really important for the director and the editor to have a relationship discreet from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And to have it be very personal and very private. I also think there's a period which is called the director's cut period, which is immediately following the filming of the movie, which is actually by DGA. It's required by the Directors Guild of America. And I actually think it's really important. It's, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, this old Jewish custom that when people get married, right after the wedding, the husband and the wife need to go in a little room together, just alone for a little while before they hit the celebration. Yeah. And I kind of feel it's a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. You need a moment 
for the, as far as the director is concerned, with the assistance of an editor who actually knows the technique with which you need to cut the film, to let the movie breathe inside your head mm-hmm. and on that screen. And it's really, really important to have that away from everybody, including your producer. That said, once that period is over, I, um, I absolutely am very opinionated. Yeah. And well, I'm, not, I'm usually not alone. I, I, there are other producers on this movie. Right. And uh, there's other producers on Passengers. And well, you sound like uh, you have a lot of trust. You you work with the same director, and you said three different films now. So you you've developed a bond and a trust with them. And I I imagine that you have you brought a lot of people along with you from these pro- different projects. Mm-hmm. And you, you like to see that when when you see somebody who like an Altman who worked with a lot of the same. Uh, there's so many directors. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I We're, love that. I mean, th- it's yeah. interesting because I did two movies without Rodrigo with um, Brad Silberling and Robin Spiker, which were wonderful. Yeah. And then it really was, it was really fun to go back, having been away from him for a couple movies, to work with Rodrigo, um, because I felt I actually could bring more to the table, yeah. having been away from him for a little bit. I, I think that the part of filmmaking that is most intriguing and the thing that I f- would find the most satisfying is developing this community of, of artists and, and working with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And you get, you get to know their capabilities and the rest of it. it it's, it's terrific. And, uh, well, Julie, we, we're, we, unfortunately, we're running uh, out of time here. <laughs> um, is there anything, as as uh, John Lovitz would say on Saturday Night Live, uh, plug away. Is there something that you want to tell our audience? I mean, oh? I think Ten Items or Less will be out on DVD soon, so oh, please nice. take a look at that. And Nine Lives yeah. is out on DVD. It's the one by Rodrigo Garcia, not yeah. the Paris Hilton movie. Okay. And um, then upcoming, please go see Jane Austen Book Club, which will probably be out sort of in the early second half of this year, and then Passengers, which is Rodrigo's movie starring Anne Hathaway and Patrick Wilson and Diane Wiest and David Morris and Andre Brower and Cleo Duvall. Very good. Well, Julie, How's that? that is, <laughs> yeah, you did perfect. a fantastic job there. Julie Lynn, it is a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being uh, for joining us here on Film School. Thanks, guys. Good luck with uh, with all your all your interviews and programs. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at kuci.org/slash/filmschool.